Welcome to How Did You Manage That, a podcast where we talk to music managers about their journeys, the highs, the lows, and everything in between. I am Ali McRae. And I am Sophie Pallock. It's episode six of the podcast, so you probably know what we're all about. We are about talking to music managers who are doing innovative, amazing, interesting things right now in 2019, breaking barriers, breaking the mould, and just being total outliers, like most managers kind of have to be. So this week, have we got a treat for you. This guy. Exactly. This Me and Ali are so excited to get this pod out, it's ridiculous. A guy who it's safe to say has had a legendary career in music. A guy whose past management and clients include, get this list, Elton John, Guns and Roses, Iron Maiden and Morrissey. And wait, wait, wait. He even ran the management company that looked after the Queen Bee herself, Beyonce. And importantly, before that, Destiny's Child. Oh, yes, of course. God. He was there at the start. He was there at the start, Sophie. He also now represents chic legend and songwriting genius Nile Rodgers. So if you haven't guessed already, it is Merck Mercuriadis. Merck is not only this legendary manager, but he's a founder of Hypnosis Songs, a publishing company... And I say the word publishing lightly because he kind of told me off for doing that, as you'll hear in the interview. Hypnosis has raised millions of pounds to buy the catalogues of some huge songwriters. We'll hear all about that. But even today, as we record the links for this podcast, he's in the music news again, uh, speaking out about his plan and what he's trying to do with the rights of some of the big writers he works with. And we're all here for that, obviously. One of the reasons we do this podcast is because we want to talk to managers who are doing new things, wanting to reshape the industry, make changes. So again, we're gushing too much, Ali. We haven't even started yet and we're gushing too much, but he was just an amazing person to interview. Of course, this podcast is sponsored and supported by two very innovative organisations just like that, the MMF and the Brilliant AWOL, who are the sponsors of the podcast, who without them... We could not make this work. Big thank you to AWOL and the MMF. So, let's get into it. We went down to the Hypnosis Songs office in King's Cross to have a chat with Merck. And much like the Jamie Oborn podcast, I had a bit of a fangirl moment. I think you had a fangirl moment as well, Ali. So, yeah, let's get to it and we'll chat about it after the interview. Here it is. So we are here in the Hypnosis Songs office with the legendary, and it sounds very flattering to say that, isn't it? <laughs> legendary Merck Mercuriadis. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. I, I sort of laugh when I hear that because at the end of the day, I can't play the guitar. I can't sing a song. So the only reason why I'm here and the only thing that gives me a seat at the table with all of these great artists is doing good work on their behalf. So it's not me that's legendary, it's them that's legendary. Um, Just quickly before we start, this is either going to be a really interesting answer or a very quick answer. No. You have a remarkably tidy office. Ah, that's because I'm never here. There you go. And you scrap that one. It's the boring answer. I thought it's either going to be some theory about psychology or he's not here often. Well, no, I... You know, look, in a funny way, there is a theory behind it, which is that I I do operate on what someone once taught me was the clean desk theory, which is that, um, you know, I I believe that managing artists is a responsibility. The desk is clean on the one hand because I'm never here. It's clean on the other hand because I think you have to answer your phone calls the day they come in. I think you have to answer your emails the day they come in. I'd like them to be within minutes of, 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 of coming in and keep that energy flowing and keep everything as positive as you possibly can so that you create an environment for the artist that allows them to be able to do their best work. Let's, uh, let, let's take a break briefly to, to your experience as a manager. And I suppose... You've, you've touched on it quite a lot already, the role of a manager, and it feels like from the first thing you said there, it's a very protective role. You know, this is a very broad question, but how would you describe the role of manager? I think, you know, based on, on, on the way that you phrased the question, I think that the, 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 the first thing is that there has to be a recognition that it's not about you, it's about the artist. Um, and I think that there are lots of managers that have success that then start to believe that it's about them. And there's, you know, I think there's a a nasty word in the, uh, uh, you know, music business 
uh, you know, vocabulary, which is Svengali, right? Oh, God. And, and Svengali, <laughs> you know, Svengali is when you see... So it, this is my interpretation yeah. of it. This, by the way, this might be fucking completely, <laughs> completely, <laughs> completely wrong entirely as far as the, the dictionary uh, definition of it. But to me, a, a Svengali is somebody that recognizes talent in someone mm -hmm. and then wants to make that talent fit what they think is possible, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm the total opposite of that. Mm -hmm. I believe that there's a responsibility there that one, recognizes that it's about the artist, two, recognizes that it's about really discovering what it is that the artist wants for themselves. Mm -hmm. Three, it's about then the belief that you're in alignment with the artist on what they want for themselves and you believe you can make that come true. And then four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, etc., is that you are prepared to apply yourself to, you know, really come up with a plan that can help make that a reality. Because, you know, I've I've said this before, so I apologize to anyone that's listening and that this might be redundant, but success isn't difficult. What's difficult is the success that you want, right, mm -hmm. as an artist, because that really requires discipline, right? So, you know, every day in this business, we're being thrown opportunities, right? And those opportunities might further our career, but they might actually, as at the same time as they're furthering our career, take us further and further away from where we want to be, right? Um, and ultimately, that's not my role as a manager. My role as a manager is to continually remind you of where it is that you want to be, keep you focused on that. Now, you might turn around to me and say, well, actually, it's evolved, and now I want to be a little bit more this way than that way, and that's totally fine, but again, that just requires discussion and, you know, it, you ultimately have to end up being in a situation that says that, you know, I've set out on this path, I'm sticking to this path, I'm not going to allow myself to be corrupted by all of these other things. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm in business with someone as my manager that is in alignment with me and that's going to help me stay true to that. How do you manage the expectations of your artists by telling them the truth right? <laughs> so so it's you know it's it's really um you know if, if you can't be so i think if you talk to anyone about me they would probably tell you that i'm positive right so i'm always going to come at something from the perspective of enthusiasm i'm always going to come at something from the perspective of everything is possible, right? But at the same time, I'm going to tell you the truth, right? So I'm not going to hype you into believing that, that, that something is, is uh, different to what it actually is. Um, equally well, I think that as managers, we have a responsibility to educate our artists that they're building a business, right? And in fact, if you build a business on the basis of integrity and you sort of use the analogy of the corner shop, you can actually build a really successful business without too much sacrifice of, you know, from your integrity or anything else. Because if you think about it, you know, there's a guy that has the corner shop. And if he wants to make a hundred grand a year, he just has to make sure that his expenses, the gap between his expenses and his takings are a hundred grand, right? And, you know, equally well, if you're abandoned, you want to go out there and make 250 grand a year and you really think about what that means from the point of view of, well, how many shows do I have to uh, do in order to be able to do that? Mm -hmm. How much merch do I need to be able to do to be able to do that? How many records do I need to be able to sell? How many songs, you know, you know, how much song income has to come into it, et cetera? You know, all of that is entirely doable, but then you have to break it down from the point of view of, 
what element of this is within my control and what element of this is in someone else's control, right? So records, use of songs, etc., they're in someone else's control. And hopefully, you know, you become influential enough that every time you decide you want to make a record or every time you put a, you decide you want to put a song on, you've got a gang of people that are lining up help you, helping you to do that. But for the most part, the one thing that really is within your control is playing live and conducting yourself the way that you want to conduct yourself. A lot of bands that are on the road right now that are selling way more concert tickets than they're selling music, you know. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, by the way, that's not just legacy artists, that's new artists mm -hmm. that, that, that are, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a band um, in London at the moment um, um, called Frank Moody who, you know, are on the tip of people's tongues in terms of, of people signing them. Um, but for whatever reason, that part of it hasn't happened yet because they make, you know, maybe the music that they make is too good. Mm -hmm. um, but they, you know, they're, 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 you know, selling out the Village Underground. They're selling out, you know, a, hundred, a thousand tickets in seven or eight markets around the country you know, without uh, yeah. uh, anyone lined up to put their music out yet. And they're not the only example of that. There's plenty of examples of that. And that's a business that is going to serve them well in the long run because it will give them the freedom, the financial freedom, to be able to make the decisions that are best for them rather than having to ask someone's permission to go play live or someone's permission to make a record or someone's permission to be a band. How do you feel about, obviously you started in A&R and records back in the old school days, if we can call them that, and now obviously it's changed so much. There's so many distributors, the AWOLs, the Dittos, which mean that you can just, I suppose the great thing about that is if you have a record and you like it, you can just put it out. You don't have to sit there and, like you said, wait for someone's permission. Do you work with those distributors? Do you work with non-record labels to help with your artists? Do you think that is a really positive thing about the industry now that people can just put their music out and start making money and the income streams are coming in quicker? Well, I think, first of all, let me say that um, I was a young, dumb A&R guy. Um, because, you know, That's in the job description. I was a young, dumb A&R guy that, that, that went to work for Richard Branson's Virgin Records which was not only the greatest record company in the world at that time, but was also, without question, the most artist-friendly record company. Um, and we had tremendous success with you know, everything from Simple Minds to Culture Club to the Blue Nile to Human League, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, XTC, wow. etc. And we basically took you know, what were left of center post-punk artists and made them the biggest artists in the world. Um, and I had very little to do with that. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was just lucky enough to be, to, to, to be a part of just it. Just to make the coffee. Right? Yeah. Um, just to make the coffee. But the, but the part of me that was young and dumb was that I wasn't sophisticated enough to realize that working for what might have been the most artist-friendly record company in the world wasn't the same as working for the artist, right? Mm -hmm. So eventually, you know, we, uh, my sort of part in the success gets rewarded by being able to be part of the team that signed this girl called Mary Margaret O'Hara. And Mary Margaret was a Canadian girl that was, uh, you know, influenced by everyone from Joni Mitchell to um, Janis Joplin, if you like. And she was extraordinary, um, but she was a unique, very, very unique person, very unique artist, and she made extraordinary music. So it took four years for her album to come out, but when it came out, it ended up being, you know, Melody Maker Album of the Year. It's one of Morrissey's favorite albums. It's still revered you know, 35 years later, et cetera. But the experience of making that record was the first time that I had this epiphany of, um, uh, oh, actually, I'm not working for the artist. I'm working for Richard Branson. <laughs> and while it may be true that there are times 
when uh, the agendas are aligned, there are also plenty of times when the agendas are not aligned and in fact, my responsibility is to Richard Branson, not to the artist. The minute I realized that I quit because I wanted to be working for the artist and with the artist, not working for the record company. Um, but I'm cognizant of the fact that you asked me a direct question. And I haven't answered it. So, well, you know, the, the great thing about the AWOLs of this world, the platoons of this world, is that there's an opportunity for artists. You know, first of all, taking AWOL and platoon and all of these other companies out of the equation, there's an opportunity for artists to be able to communicate directly with their audience in any case, right? So, you know, if they want to go on TuneCore and put their music up or whatever aggregator they want to use to put their music up, they can, exactly, they can, they can immediately put music up and, and, and the world can be paying attention to them um, in a moment if it's compelling. Um, but ultimately, you know, the real benefit, and I think, you know, Cobalt post buying AWOL from Denzel have, 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 have done a great job. But I think Platoon in particular is an extraordinary company because, you know, you have an opportunity as an artist to go to work with people that are enthusiasts of music that have real opinions and real expertise to be able to back those opinions up that build long-term careers. So, you know, right now we see Interscope and Polydor, I think, over here, um, getting great credit for the Billie Eilish story, right? Mm -hmm. But the Billie Eilish story is a story that at some point collides with Platoon and that gets this incredible enthusiasm, expertise, yeah. and ability to be able to connect new artists with what is also a new streaming world and you know two and two adds up to ten and then you know you, if you pointed to just if you could only point to Billie Eilish you'd sit there and go okay well that's luck but when you point to Billie Eilish and you point to Georgia Smith and you point to Mr. Easy and you point to Yeba and all of these artists that they are continually um, uh, embracing and then using their expertise to present to the world, um, I don't think it's luck at all, and I think it's an essential part of an artist, um, uh, you know, sort of developing their future, particularly when you then put it in the context of the fact that not one of these artists has had to give up ownership of their recordings, not one of these artists has had to give up an inordinate share of, of, of the income, not one of these artists has had to sign their life away, um, for you know the next ten years or, or, or whatever the case might be, um, so I think that that um, there's a very strong standard there that points the way, and whether you're Georgia Smith or Billie Eilish, and you use it as a stepping stone to the next um, uh, chapter of your career, very successfully in both cases or whether you decide to stick with it for the long term, I don't think matters. I think what matters is, is as a great artist, are there ways for you to be able to develop your career on your terms rather than somebody else's terms? Uh, it'd be interesting to talk about uh, Niall, obviously, who you work closely with. And I wonder, you know, from an outsider's perspective, you go, okay, it's 2019, he's Niall, Niall Rogers. He's a worldwide icon. Everything must, the doors are all open. What are the toughest things about managing an artist like Niall? There's nothing tough about managing <laughs> Niall Rogers. That's <laughs> too Niall, listen, Niall, the, the thing about Niall, and this is the, the one thing that Niall and Elton in my life have a, in, in common, is that it all starts with an enthusiasm for music. Right, so our our conversations are all about. Have you heard this? Have you heard that? Check out what our Eric Dolphy yeah. did over here. Check out what what you know Nina Simone did over there. Uh -huh. Or you know, have you heard this new record or that? You can new hear record? that in Elton's or, or, radio show and Beats. Uh, he is he has listened to every song. He knows more about what's he knows more about what's going uh -huh. on in music than you know the average person in a record company. Yeah. 
and Niall, that's hard for a manager. And, and, <laughs> Niall, and Niall does as well, yeah. right? And so, so you know, our everything in our relationship is based on enthusiasm for music. And then we just take that enthusiasm for music and we apply it to whatever we're doing at that point in yeah. time. So if we're putting on Meltdown Festival, yeah. all of our favorite bands go on Meltdown <laughs> Festival. <Funny laughs> if, we're, you know, if we're putting on a Nile Rodgers and Chic tour, we're going to figure out a way of involving artists that we know and love. You know, when we did the, the you know, sold out arena tour at Christmas time in the UK, you know, you had, you know, Kasha on, you know, who's uh, an emerging artist that we really care about, um, you know, and, and, and Frank Moody, who I mentioned before um, as well. So, you know, it's always it's it's always going to be about how do we use our platform to help other artists succeed. So the challenge um as opposed to what's difficult, because yeah, I say yeah, nothing's yeah. really difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the challenge for when you're managing someone like Nile Rogers is how do you get someone to understand or reevaluate the artist so that they see them in contemporary, yeah. contemporaneous 2019 mm -hmm. as opposed to just seeing them as the person that created amazing music over the last 40 years right Seeing so it as a heritage act correct yeah. so that that reevaluation is something that as a manager you know you have to be able to be responsible for yeah. and one of the things that i think very very carefully about is how to frame an artist in contemporary terms mm -hmm. and it's all about positioning you know someone at virgin records all those years ago gave me a book called Positioning. Uh -huh. And effectively what the book explained to you was that if you were, you know, a young kid and you decided that you were going to form, you know, let's call it a cola company, okay. hopefully you were smart enough to understand that you weren't going to be able to compete with Coca-Cola <laughs> or Pepsi-Cola because... So if you're going to have a, that's not to say you can't have a successful cola company, but if you're going to have a successful cola company, you're going to have to figure out a way of positioning yourself against them, right? So whether you're the sexy cola, whether you're the cola that makes your dick bigger, whether you're the cola that has, you know, cocutan in it, is you know your brain is going to be, you know, going to be be uh, firing on all cylinders, or whatever the case might be, you've got to be able to position yourself against. Uh, every, you know the, the 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 big boys, and it's the same thing with 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 any artist. There are a gazillion female vocalists. There are a gazillion male vocalists. There are a gazillion punk rock bands. There are a gazillion country and western artists. Yeah. There are a gazillion this that or the other thing. In Niall's case, there are you know plenty of new artists that are out there that are succeeding, and there are also plenty of you know what someone would legacy artists that are out there succeeding so what is it out there that makes you different mm -hmm. and that allows you to to be able to be positioned in a way and what we've done very successfully with Niall is we've made him just as important to the 15 year old kid as he is to the 60 year old yeah. person that was buying you know chic records 40 years ago and you know to some degree that on the surface might appear to be difficult, but when you look at this repertoire that over the last 40 years, you know, ranges from all of the great chic records that include Le Freak, which is the biggest selling single in the history of Atlantic Records, to Good Times, which is the most interpolated and sampled song yes. of all time, yeah, of to Upside Down and I'm Coming Out for yeah. Diana Ross, to He's the Greatest Dancer, you know, We Are Family, you know, Lost in Music, Thinking of You for Sister Sledge, to Madonna's Material Girl, Like a Virgin, to David Bowie's <laughs> Let's Dance, to Duran Duran's Notorious yeah. and Reflex, you know, to In Excess, to Stevie Ray Vaughan, to, you know, Daft Punk, to Sagala, to, you know, yeah. kind of just about everyone well, under the, 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 the planet. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, going back to that positioning, mm -hmm. there also has to be an ethos 
to every great artist, right? So, you know, if we went to see Bruce Springsteen tonight, we know that, you know, Bruce Springsteen is going to challenge us. He's going to make us think about things, some of which we want to think about, some things that we don't want to think about. He's going to, you know, probably slowly but surely fish out whatever empathy there is in us um, into thinking about the working man, into thinking about, you know, injustices around the world, etc. And that's Bruce's ethos. And, you know, Bruce is a storyteller. All of this in that context is what it is that makes him special. Well, Niall's ethos is joy, right? The one thing that I can guarantee you is that if you go and see Sheik tonight, um, you're going to leave feeling better than when you arrived. And you might have arrived as the happiest person in the world. <laughs> you're still going to leave feeling better yeah. because that's the purpose of, of, of this music. And then it's, I, I can't remember what the scientific term is, but there's a form of exercise yeah. that when you do it, continues to burn calories long after yeah. you've done it. It's just right? endorphins going in. Exactly. And, it's, yeah. and, and, and Niall's music is the same way. Is, you know, you're, you're going to not only leave the gig feeling better, yeah. but you're going to wake up tomorrow morning feeling better, and you're probably going to still feel good the morning after, etc. And you want to go back and have this experience because, in fact, very few artists leave you feeling that level of joy. Yeah. I used to, many years ago, work for a festival in Dubai called Sandance. Oh, sure. And Niall headlined, and I was artist liaison, so I was backstage running around, and we had Rudimental on the same lineup. And Amir from Rudimental was the biggest Niall Rogers fan mm -hmm. ever. Still and is. He, he still is. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was the first time I'd met him, and he came up to me and he just went, so if you think I can meet Niall? And I went, <laughs> um, I'll just check with his tour manager, but he seems like a nice guy, it'll be fine. And I just remember Niall, um, Amir came up to Niall and he couldn't get his words out. He just went, sign this book and just gave him a book to sign, which I think was maybe Niall's autobiography or something. And I just remember it was so lovely because Niall said, I know who you are, man, you're from Rudimental. I love that track with John Newman. And, and you no. could just see Amir was like, you know my music. Like it just, he was just, I just remember to this day, Amir's face was, I think it was I was going to cry or faint. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. sure, but it was just such a lovely moment to see. I was just like, now Niall and the Rudimental guys being in the studio together is a regular occurrence. Amazing. Those guys are incredible. You know, they, they go in and they make records from the heart mm -hmm. and they make records that they believe in. And obviously the records that they make are of an incredible quality. Um, and when you look at, at, you know, a song like These Days, for example, which obviously just won the Ivan Novello's most performed work. Um, and, uh, you know, I love the story about Amir, you know, sort of being shy and bashful yeah, about meeting, so meeting Niall. But when you're as good as they are, what you're going to find out is that someone like Niall or Elton or you know, anyone that really knows their onions is going to recognize that and go, hold on a second. <laughs> you know? It's actually not about, again, going back to the concept of it not being about you. You know, when you recognize that someone else has got that special quality, you're going to react to it. How is the process of managing that? Uh, is that another side of the business? Obviously, who's in with Niall writing? And well, that's, you know, going back to the concept of your question about how to manage Niall Rogers. So, you know, or, or is it difficult or is it not difficult or, or, you know, what's it about? You know, so in my quest to get the world to reevaluate Nile Rogers in 2019 terms, um, which you know then permeates into 2020, 30, etc. You know, one of the things that I did was was created this role for Nile at Abbey Road Studios as the chief creative advisor, um, and it was my view that. At a point, you know, when if, if we go back to the beginning of my career, 90% of the artists that are being signed are people that write their own songs, perform their own songs, have a very good idea of who they are, who they want to be, um, you know, what their album cover should look like, what their stage show should look like, etc. And my job is to A, believe in them, and B, to then put a strategy in place that helps them bring that to fruition. Um, you know, you then fast forward to 2019 and 90% of the artists that are being signed 
are really talented people, but for most of them, fame is what is the key um, goal. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some cases, well, in most cases, the song that's being performed is written by somebody else, oh, yeah. right? And you know, if we look at Los Angeles as what is now the songwriting capital of the world, mm-hmm. there is a very sophisticated system in place amongst the very best songwriters um, that, you know, allow people like Shawn Mendes, you know, whether it's with Teddy Geiger um, or, you know, Justin Bieber with Pooh Bear, etc., to have the best material in the world available to them and material that is custom, you know, created for them that allows them to not only be hugely successful as pop artists, but actually to be developing something that is a stamp, an, an identifiable stamp that is them. Yeah. Right? Creating um, that identity. It, it, yeah, precisely. Absolutely. Because you're really, you know, smart management, working with the best songwriters, working with an artist that, that's not just about choosing a song that can be a hit, but choosing a song that is appropriate for that artist and is appropriate for helping that artist become the full enchilada as it were Um, and uh, so you know that system is not as sophisticated in the UK as it is in the US and I saw this opportunity for Niall as one of the great record makers of the last 40 years and somebody that has been doing you know, what Teddy Geiger, what Pooh Bear and everyone else is doing right now for 40 years, right? To start to establish um, a similar protocol in the UK. Mm -hmm. Um, So we created this role at Abbey Road as chief creative advisor. So whenever Nal is not on the road, he's in the studio at Abbey Road, which we consider to be the greatest place in the world Mm -hmm. to create Mm-hmm. Um, and a blessing um, and we you know start on a Monday morning and by the end of a Saturday evening uh-huh. we might have as many as 20 artists that come through and Nile just helps them you know the, the thing that's really special about Nile as a creator is that you could present him with something that is 80% shit mm-hmm. and 20% gold and he doesn't see the shit. He only sees the gold. Right? And he focuses on that. And then he'll build from that. Right. Whereas to most creators, you walk in with something that's 80% shit and 20% gold. And they go, that's a pile of shit. Yeah. Right. And, then, and, then, and, that's, and that's, that's something that, you know, that it, it takes someone very special to just be able to be obtuse to the part that's not useful and be a total enthusiast of the part that is useful because what that process does is it suddenly allows the artist to get into a comfort zone that allows them to be the very best that they can possibly be. One of the catalogues I think you first bought with was the dream, right? Correct. Terry Snash. Yeah. I'm a very big Terry <laughs> fan and that's have good. been for years and it was really weird. I used to spend time, it's a bit stalkerish, on YouTube looking for the demos of songs that hadn't been released. And there was always one that he did for Mary J. Blige called Love Slave, which is song. one of the most phenomenal songs of all time. I don't think, I don't think Mary ever did it. I think it, she demoed it, but I don't know if it was released. Never, that's right. And I love it. And so when I heard that you'd bought the Dreams catalogue, I was like, I know this is nothing to do with music management, but I just have to talk about, the, just talk about Terriers well, for a little bit. It's, every, <laughs> it's everything to do with music management. Because, you know, because... Yeah. Yeah. It's true. You know, the, the Dream who's somebody that I've had a long relationship with and, you know, is amongst the people on this planet that I'm the fondest of, mm-hmm. is somebody that, you know, has taught me, uh, even though I'm older um, and had success before he did, etc. he's taught me a tremendous amount because the dream wakes up every day and he goes to work and he walks in and, you know, he might go into a session and it might be three or four days where he's just observing, paying attention, you know, not really kind of doing anything other than soaking it all in. And then suddenly he just turn around to the artist and go, okay, I think I know where we're at now. Mm-hmm. And five minutes later, you've got single ladies put a ring on it. 
um, and all this magic. But the thing about him is, is that as incredible as his success is, and you know, when you look at it, and and, and this is something that that always needs to be put in context, right? This is a guy that's written Umbrella for Rihanna. He's written single, you know, plus 15 other songs for her. He's written single ladies, put a ring on it, plus 20 other songs for Beyonce, including, you know, one plus one, love on top. I woke up like this. He's he's written all of the lights for Kanye West, right? Massive. He's he's written. He used to work with Tricky Stewart. Absolutely, and we have Tricky's catalog as well, Um, and he's written, you know, No Church in the Wild with Frank Ocean, Jay Z, Kanye West. He's written, you know, Holy Grail for Jay Z and Justin Timberlake. And going back to your point, um, you know, if I was Justin Timberlake and I heard the Dreams version of Holy Grail. I would cry, and that's not to take anything away from 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 Justin because he's tremendous on Holy Grail, but the dream is singing that song in the way that only the guy that wrote the song could sing it. I have it. that with one plus one. I yeah. love his demo. Before. His demo it's one plus one. Yeah. Because it's Beyonce's song, obviously, but I heard it when he sings it. I'm just like, oh, there's that cadence in his voice. There's an authenticity yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that that's just impossible to repeat. And you know, so, so, that, <laughs> you know, so, so this guy's written seven or eight of the culturally most important songs Mm -hmm. for the culturally most important artists of the last 20 years, right? If we, you know, I I guarantee you, I'm prepared to guarantee you that if we're still alive 80 years from now and we look back on this millennium that Beyonce, Rihanna, Jay-Z, Kanye West... Mm -hmm. You know, we haven't even mentioned "Baby" for Justin Bieber. Yeah. These are, are are probably the five most culturally important artists of our time, and he's written the signature songs for all of them. On a side note, Beyonce's Coachella. Have you watched it? I have. We own, I think, at last count, fourteen of the songs. Fourteen of the yeah, songs in, in the set. How does that feel watching something that you are a part of and obviously have been part of that journey a lot of way when it is such a, that was a moment, that was Netflix maybe most live moment, I would argue, when that went live? I think that's right. I th- look, I think that um, if I'm going to say anything about Beyonce, I have a responsibility to say that as difficult a man as her father, Matthew Knowles, was, and he could be a difficult guy, that he did an incredible job of both developing Destiny's Child and Beyonce's solo career, and more importantly, instilling in Beyonce that everything is possible, right? Because at a point in time, we managed both Mary J. Blige and Beyonce. And, you know, the way that I would, you know, sort of describe both of them is that I think Beyonce is the hardest working person in show business. She's inherited that mantle from James Brown. Um, And she's one of the greatest entertainers there is. She's got incredible taste. And she's become a cultural icon because of the mixture of uh, all of those things. Mary J. Blige is someone that's going to wake up in the middle of the night and there's going to be something that's either going to manifest itself in in, in a great song or otherwise, if it doesn't manifest itself in in, in a great song, might manifest itself into something far nastier, right? And you can choose which one of those two things you think is more interesting because they both are. Um, but for some people, the Mary Road will be more interesting. For other people, the Beyonce Road will be the most interesting. But I think that when you look at what Beyonce has uh, achieved, um, there's arguably no other artist like her. She's proven that everything is possible, and she's manifested this success for mm-hmm. herself. You know, if you are in a Beyonce rehearsal, um, you know, the the uh, most astonishing part of it 
is not just how insane the vocals are or how insane the singing is. The most astonishing part of it is that she's covered in bruises from head to toe because that's how hard she works to get it right. Yeah. It was something like eight months or something for that Coachella performance. Was it like, well, from 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 the documentary? Um, so you, I, you know, <laughs> that I'm not. I wasn't involved in that. Uh-huh, of course, but, yeah. So I, I can't say. But what I can tell you is that this is a girl that puts effort to the point where she is literally covered from head to toe in bruises. Just before we wrap up, it'd be good to talk about... We will go into the publishing, because I think you mentioned a few times talking about the dream, oh, it's not really management, but the role of a manager has always been, and the role of a good manager should be have an awareness and a knowledge and contacts in every area. But I feel like you've also worked and been successful in every area in many different ways across your career. Um, how is it where you are now and what you're doing in, in, in this office and in publishing? Well, I I created the Hypnosis Songs Fund as a way of giving um, investors, institutional investors, an opportunity to participate in song royalties. Um, And I did that, um, you know, from the perspective of it being a smart commercial opportunity. Streaming is growing the pie very rapidly. at a point in time when, you know, we've had 15 years of, you know, technological disruption in this business that, you know, effectively allowed people to be able to consume music for free. So the assets are available. When I use the word assets, that's the way the city would describe, you know, what what songs are. Um, At a a point in time that that, that, um, this pie is, 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 is growing very, very nicely. But that's not my motive for, you know, I like to make money the way that anyone likes to make money, but that's not my motive for creating it. What I wanted to do was to educate the financial community that proven songs and artists, um, the IP that artists create, whether they're songs or masters, are when proven, predictable and reliable and as predictable and reliable as gold or oil, um, and therefore as investable as gold or oil. And I saw that, again, as my way of being able to do something for the artistic community, because no one's ever been able to do that before. Because not only, with if I was successful in getting this concept across, not only would the assets that I bought um, gain in value, but also everyone else's songs and recorded masters and assets would gain in value as well because the market would then see all of this IP that's out there as the successful part of it anyways is something that is predictable and reliable and therefore investable and everyone's um, uh, holdings yeah. would rise in value. So, you know, what I'm doing isn't just for me, but it's for every songwriter and every artist that's out there. The other part of it, which is, um, uh, you know, kind of deeper into my ulterior motive, is that I wanted, so, you know, the fund currently is at about half a billion dollars. By the time we get to the end of this year, it'll be over a billion dollars. A couple of years into it, I think we'll be at two or three billion dollars. We have over a billion pounds worth of pipeline that are some of the finest songs and recorded masters of all time. And you know, in the same way that you've seen so many announcements come from us, you know, I think currently we've announced twenty-three catalogs or something approaching twenty-three catalogs. Wow. You know, in in due course, you know, by the end of this year, we'll be over forty of them. Um, but I want to use the critical mass and the leverage that comes from you know having three or four billion pounds worth of assets to uh, change the place in the economic equation that the songwriter currently holds. Mm-hmm. And my view is really simple, and I think it's a logical one that no one will ever argue against or can argue against, is that the three biggest song companies in the world being Universal, Warner, and Sony 
can't really advocate for songwriters to the extent that they should because they're owned by Universal, Warner, and Sony, the three biggest recorded music companies in the world. On the song side of the business, you have one-fifth of the money, a small margin, and in general, the assets eventually go back to the creator, or you know, you hope that they revert to the to the creator or co-creator. On the recorded music side of the business, you've got four-fifths of the money going that way. You've got a huge margin, and in general, they own those assets in perpetuity. There are very few artists in relative terms that actually own their yeah. masters, right? So when the business is improving the way that it is right now, thanks to streaming, and to put that in context, two years ago, we had 50 million paid subscribers to music streaming services. You know, now we have 200 million paid subscribers to music streaming services. JP Morgan predicted by 2030 we'll have 2 billion paid subscribers to music streaming services. So we're talking about a business that is four times the size of what it was two years ago from a streaming perspective, and that's predicted to be 10 times the size of what it is today in the next 10 years, again, from a streaming perspective, right? But all of that improvement, as it currently stands, is going to recorded music because of the leverage that Universal, Warner, and Sony have over Universal, Warner, and Sony, right? (laughs) Recorded music versus publishing. I want to challenge that. And I came to the conclusion that the only way that you can challenge that, it doesn't matter how logical you are, it doesn't matter how successful you've been in your career, if you don't control billions of dollars worth of assets, you don't have leverage. But the change can't come from within. You know, if, yeah. if, if, if Rob or Lucien were to walk into you know, their corporate companies and say, <laughs> yeah. I just had this epiphany, you know, songwriters should be paid more money, <laughs> yeah. they'd be looking at them like they were crazy, right? But at a certain point, if they have to walk in and say, hey, we're going to have to do something about this because the tide is changing and you know songwriters are coming together and there's more power in the songwriters hands and they're delivering effectively what is the currency of our business right yeah. and we need artist a b c d e f g h i j k l m n o p q r s t u v w x y and z to have the best songs possible um so we're going to have to roll with these changes. Um, it just it just struck me as we started talking about the more business financial side there, we'd spent maybe 45 minutes discussing the artists and songs and the Blue Nile and the dream and passionately doing that. And the minute we started talking about the business, you started speaking a different language. Yeah. You started using different words. You even pointed it out, saying the word asset. Yeah. And I think to draw to a close of one line that can go through the young A&R Virgin and then working with these incredible, <laughs> sorry, those incredible artists, and then to know what you're doing here is that you've had that ability to speak different languages to different people, to the artist, communicate their views, to the label, communicate what the artist wants. And now it feels like the same sort of thing in publishing. Well, it's the, first of all, we don't use the word publishing. I want to erect. To me, it's a dirty word because it's just a, it's a euphemism for someone that writes a check, but that doesn't really add value to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And part of my mission is to eradicate that word from our business and from an artist's vocabulary. I want to replace that with the concept of song management. And I want every artist to have not only a manager going forward, but to have a song manager going forward alongside their booking agent, etc. And has you know the ability to see every song as a, a living, breathing entity in its own right and to recognize that we have the same responsibility to the song that we have to the artist. Um, and that's really important to me and that's certainly a big part of, of the hypnosis mission. Um, I think that you know the point that you've made about these different languages is absolutely critical because it all stems from how do I do my best for this songwriter, this producer, this artist, right? Whether it's framing um, their work and positioning them and explaining their ethos to the music community or whether it's explaining the value of it to the financial community or in due course 
to the legal community so that and, and the political community so that the change that needs to take place takes place. I put a great deal of thought into ensuring that I never say anything that's not logical, right? So everything, you know, as I said, I don't think it matters, you know, whether you work at Universal, Sony, Warner, Domino, Rough Trade, or, you know, uh, uh, Platoon or Cobalt, everything that I'm saying is logical. And it will be logical to Senator so-and-so, member of parliament so-and-so, um, and to, you know, the head of the Church of England, the head of Investec, the head of Invesco, yeah. you know, et cetera, because I want them to, you know, really understand um, what the true power of the artist is. And as I was saying at the very beginning of this conversation, it's not about me, it's about the artist. All I'm doing is communicating in a way that is no different to, you know, if, 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 you know what Jimmy Page is to Robert Plant. I want to be that same thing to both, to both of them. The difference is that I'm playing a telephone and they're playing a guitar and a microphone. Playing a telephone. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> lovely. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's very candy. That was a lovely chat. Lots of wisdom, lots of pearls of wisdom, I think, to go away with. Super. Well, thank you both. Brilliant. Thank, thank you. So there you go. That was a little insight into the brain of Merck, a man who has seen it all in the music industry, now running things with a publishing company. Sorry, shouldn't call it publishing. And uh, managing, of course, Niall Rogers. Some amazing stories there. I got a bit excited about the fact that he has worked with the Blue Nile, one of my favourite ever Scottish bands. And Sophie, you get a wee bit excited too. Yeah, oh, as you guys heard, I'm a massive fan of a songwriter called The Dream and he wrote single Ladies for Beyonce, he wrote Umbrella for Rihanna. He's an incredible artist in himself. And so when I found out that he had his catalogue, I obviously just went on a bit of a mad one and started talking about rare B-sides that no one had heard of. But I think Loved he appreciated it. that and he appreciated my love of songs because that's what he was all about anyway. He loves songs and the songwriters. So I really feel we've probably just scratched the surface with that interview, Ali. Like he probably could have given us hours and hours of stories and, and things we could have taken away. So maybe, maybe in the future we'll have to do like a long edit with him or something. That would be great. We might just do that. If you enjoyed the podcast, we would love it if you could tweet out to your networks and let people know that this podcast exists. We're on Twitter and Instagram at ManageThatPod. That would be really kind of you. Brilliant. So I guess until next week, I've been Ali. She's been Sophie. Bye. How Did You Manage That is brought to you by the MMF and sponsored by AWOL. The podcast is produced and hosted by Sophie Pallock and Ali McRae. Original music by Callum Wiseman.